Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. This week, we have another repeat guest. We'd like to welcome Harold Davis. He's here for his new book, Creative Garden Photography, available from Rocky Nook. Harold, thanks for joining us again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're in lovely Berkeley, California. You've got gardens all around, and you've got this lovely book that just came out, 360 pages, flaps on the covers. Um, it's as much a book of beautiful pictures of flowers and gardens as it is a book of technique of shooting flowers and gardens. Well, I think the subtitle of this book really says a lot about it, making great photos of flowers, gardens, landscapes, and the beautiful world around us. And as you said, Kirk, yes, there are beautiful gardens around me in Berkeley, California, and part of the book is how you use the gardens near you, your own yard, your own gardens, your own flowers, but also the photographs in this book are from literally all over the world, from Asia, France, Europe, other parts of the United States. So there are many kinds of gardens that I photographed here. And part of the book is about a taxonomy of how you approach gardens. How does the style of the garden design interact with how you photograph it, as well as more closely technical issues like lighting and so on. You're a man of many skills. We had you on uh, episode 50 when you were talking about your book, Creative Black and White, um, which was just purely focusing on black and white. It's fair to say that garden photography is mostly, though not entirely, color photography. And it is a very interesting contrast to the photos in your black and white book. Well, there is a section, actually, you know, it's funny you should mention that. There's there's a section in this book on black and white garden photography, which is near and dear to my heart. In fact, I'm trying to find it here. here. The garden in black and white from page 148 to 168. So there's 20 pages of that. And I think it can be very effective to uh, photograph gardens in black and white. There's a tradition of this going back to Ache and other fine photographers where, in fact, you, you can create special monumental and um, organized pattern effects in black and white that aren't as obvious in color. And there is a role for black and white in the garden photography. That said, yes, I refuse to be pigeonholed. As someone who is represented by some very fine photography art galleries, there is a tendency in the art world to try and pigeonhole you. You know, this is what you do. This is the formula. This is what we want our collectors to know about you. I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do whatever interests me, whatever turns me on, and whatever I'm passionate about. And I happen to be very passionate about flowers, also about black and white photography. And there is an intersection of the two in places. But yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, uh, very honestly, I am not probably going to go to Monet's garden in Giverny and photograph it in black and white. That's not going to happen probably for me. Well, you know that bridge, the famous bridge yes, shot there? That looks pretty good in black and white. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, okay, so your your book is essentially divided in two sections. I mean, there's a sort of beginning and then there's a, an mm -hmm. afterward. But you photograph the garden at large and then taking the garden close up and inside. And these are two very, very different things because – um, I lived in France for a long time. I lived in Tours, so I went to a lot of chateaus along the Loire River. Um, you know them well, Chenonceau, with the big gardens. And you go in there, and the garden itself is 
it's it's a subject. It's a big landscape in in a microcosm, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's a good way to put it. And yes, the two are very different subjects. And in fact, there's a certain school of garden professional garden photography that says, you know, why why focus on bringing the garden inside and on the microcosm because you, know, you can photograph flowers, uh, you know, anywhere. They don't have to be in a garden. But actually, I think there is something very special about the microcosm in gardens and that really a world-class and well-designed garden has special miniature aspects to it as well as larger aspects. So I think per the subtitle of my book, I have defined garden photography at large as a large topic that includes the small world that can be as infinite as the large world in its own way. And again, I'm not going to be limited. When I think of gardens, I immediately, and this is something that I think we've covered before, is that sense of 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 being overwhelmed. And I like what you just said, because oftentimes you'll approach a large garden, and if it's not well-designed, it's just a mass of different flowers and things everywhere. Um, and even the ones that are well-designed, you look at it and think, all right, where do I start? Because there's so much color. There's so much uh, variety. And so my question to you is, when you come to a place like this, where do you start? Do you just try to take in the whole, like, like, do you start shooting wide and large and then sort of gradually move in? Or does it really depend on what you have in mind for the day or what sticks out to you? Well, it's funny you should ask that, Jeff. It's a great question, first of all. Uh, I I have several checklists in the book, what to do when you go into a garden and how to approach photographing it. In particular, one, how would you approach photographing a semi-formal or formal French garden when you go there? Uh, I think that you have to view garden photography from the point of view of the intent is, you know, what are you there to do, first of all? If you're there as a professional creating a portfolio shot for a landscape designer, that's a very different kettle of fish than if you're there as an artist saying, I want to satisfy myself. So you need to understand, and there's some obviously other possibilities between those two as well. So you need to understand where you're coming from. But within that, there is a sort of standard uh, paradigm of how I would suggest approaching a garden. And that includes getting a sense of what the garden design is about. I think, Jeff, you were just saying you can have a garden that's a jumble. Well, but a good garden has a plan. So understand what the plan is, what the intent behind the design is. And usually what I also do, if it's a garden with topography, I head for a high point so I can get an overview. I like to look at a map of the garden. I like to understand and the lighting that's there when I'm there. Is this diffuse lighting? Is it bright lighting? Is it lighting where I'm, well, uh, uh, I'm out of luck? Is it great lighting? What do I do with the lighting? Uh, am I going to have to supplement it in some way? Am I going to have to improvise? Uh, what's, the, what's the lighting fall off? I mean, there's a bit of uh, talk about in, in this book about the fundamental law of reflections, how that works, how the fall off in light from reciprocity works. People 
say that's an exponential fall off over distance, which it turns out when I looked into it is false. It's not. It's a quadratic fall off, which is different. So, you know, one of the interesting things about the book is that the text here can get fairly technical. I've got a in the back, I've got a list of figures. And that's an interesting thing to look at because there are 21 figures ranging from things like hyperfocal distance and uh, fundamental law of reflection, focal plane, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's also a glossary of botanical terms. I'm somebody who believes in knowing what you photograph. Okay. And that cuts across the subjects that, that I'm interested in. And you can't be a good garden or flower photographer without knowing something about the history of garden design, the techniques, and about botany and flowers as well. You have a wonderful picture of the garden at uh, Villandrie in France. And it's such a, a wonderful place as you wander through it because you don't really see the sort of geometry of the garden. Your photo is shot high enough so you can see it. And you wander through this garden and it's got different levels and it's all formal and squares and everything. And it's not quite like a maze, but when you see it, from a higher angle, you see how complex the design of the garden is. And in particular, in the lower section, if I remember correctly, uh, that's an herb garden, right? In that whole lower section where there's sort of like boxes. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, it, it's a wonderful picture because it does show you um, this particular type of French formal garden. Um, a, another type of garden I particularly like is the Japanese garden. And you've got a number of pictures of that, too. Well, you know, Valandri is a funny garden, isn't it? I mean, it's it's either magnificent and wonderful. It's certainly one of the best examples of its type that is extant and well-maintained and so on. Uh, but it, it, at some level, it's not my favorite kind of garden. It, well, it's not very gardeny. It's exactly. very shapey. Exactly. Um, as as you walk through it, you've just got all these shapes and forms, and and everything is so perfectly pruned, and and it's almost it's almost too tame. Exactly, Kirk. I mean, at some level, you're exactly right that at a meta level, it has its own kind of formality that's as formal as a formal Japanese rock garden, even though it's got plants in it. For my own money, you know, if I had to say where my heart beats best, it's in wilder gardens. But that's, you know, that's a matter of taste that gardens are integral to humanity. I mean, I'm not much of a fan of uh, suburban lawns, which are a kind of garden after all. And I'm really not much of a fan of golf courses, as I note in <laughs> in my in the book, uh, particularly in the desert. They're, they're really horrible in the desert. But, you know, they're gardens, in fact, too. And I was I, I was funny. I was just going through files. One of the things we're all doing in this uh, in this sheltering in place, I think. And so I was looking to a trip that I made uh, back a few years back into Nevada to photograph a garden of cars. So in this case, what somebody had done or two people had done over the years was they planted all these old cars hood down in the desert, sticking up like flowers. So that's a kind of yeah, garden. Too. That. Yeah. Probably the leading book about garden theory is by a uh, Stanford university, art history professor. And, you know, one of his examples is urban gardens made of old tires. Hmm. In, in center city. I mean, you know, that's not, it doesn't have the, for some reason, 
as as Michael Pollan in the Botany of Desire uh, put it, uh, flowers uh, flowers Darwinian survival techniques have been to be liked by us by humanity. They've spread with humanity because they give us joy right away. And obviously, a garden of old cars or of tires doesn't have that same impact. But I think it is still fair to call it a garden. It's still a human artifact designed yeah. for certain reasons. There may not be things growing in it. There may not be plants growing, but it's still uh, because the garden is a couple of things. It's a meeting place. It's a place for promenades. It's a place for wooing. Um, I'm thinking of my Shakespeare here where a number of scenes are set in <laughs> gardens. Um, it, it's not, it's not just a place to show off flowers. It's a place in some way the flowers are sort of decorating the space because a garden is essentially a space. And and if a rich person had a big garden, it just meant they had a big space and they had a lot of land. Um, so I live in a farmhouse that was built around 1800 and we have a garden. I think my landlord said it's about a third of an acre. So you could put three or four tennis courts. It's fairly large. Um, when we moved here four years ago, it was pretty much lawn and nothing else and some shrubs along the edges. And my partners really got really into gardening when we got here. And it's interesting to see how what what you can do is, is you're adorning that space. You're making um, you're making a sort of mise en scène of the space at different times of the year to see what you can make come out of the ground that looks attractive. Right. Right. So taking the garden close up and inside, and this is what interests me more. In fact, when we were talking about your black and white photography book about a year ago, I was saying that I'd been shooting flowers black and white. And you said, aha, I have a book on garden photography coming out. And just before we started recording, you mentioned that the dahlias are starting to bloom. And I find dahlias to be some of the most fascinating flowers because of the because of the symmetry, the regularity, etc. Um, it, it's it's. It's two different techniques, isn't it? Shooting an entire garden and shooting single flowers. Completely different. Some of the fact that I did so much about taking the garden in is the publisher's fault because, you know, we gave them some (laughs) pictures for the wraparound cover and this is the one they selected. It's a nice, happy cover. And they said, "Okay, you are going to tell people how to make photos like that in the book, aren't you? (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I, <laughs> you hadn't been planning on that. You've I really just been had, planning I, on. I really hadn't been planning okay. on it. In truth, <laughs> and yet, but as this I whole about section, it, it seemed right. You yeah, know? the whole the, the cover is is a is a photo you shot with a light box, and the whole section about white box photography is fascinating. And I'm I'm really looking forward to trying it out um, because it's a totally different. You know, most flower shots are macro shots, right? And what you're doing is you're doing a composition with that white background, it's a totally different type of photography. It is a totally different type of photography. And quite honestly, I get lots and lots of questions about how to do it. It, it, It's very enjoyable. It's partly arts and crafts. You know, you take a light box. It's not a high tech thing. It's a low tech thing. It's more about the composition really than anything else. But I, I do want to do an entire book on that technique at some point. I've got one planned, but it, up, it's really the, the 
this book is the place where there's the most information on that. And there's information on in the in the bringing the garden in on other kinds of techniques, how to photograph on black velvet, how to get really close, various things like that as well. You also talk a bit about insects and insects an integral part of a garden. Um, what I find fascinating when I started doing this a couple of years ago, um, got a macro lens, we had lots of flowers, is there's so much that you can see that you don't see otherwise. Isn't that the Once truth? You start looking Sometimes you poke a macro lens at something and something that you just hadn't seen before comes up and, uh, you know, and it, it, it's so bizarre. There's a, there's one photo in there that I call the lurker where there was a locust hiding in a flower. I had no idea it was there. Really evil yeah. looking thing, by the way, up close. <laughs> I also love the fact that that points to the idea that uh, garden photography doesn't have to be in ideal locations in great weather. If you want to do a lot of this kind of photography, it's not just like, oh, well, you know, it's it's too bright. I'm not going to get anything, so I'm not going to bother. Or, oh, I don't have anything growing right now in my own personal garden. But being able to take those and bring it inside to the light box. Well, I think one of the interesting things about this is if you're planting a garden, if you're not going to someone else's garden, if you're growing your own plants, you're setting the the timing for the different plants you know the daffodils come in spring the dahlias come in late summer so you're going to be able to watch them as they come up as their buds as they flower as they fade um you have a passage of time and that's your constraint of what is there today that i can photograph also if the weather's bad you just snip a flower off and take it inside. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, everything you've both said is correct, but a few things to add. One, what you've said about the constraints is true really of all natural light landscape photography. This is not specific to gardens. And the only yeah. thing you would want to add to that is that perhaps garden photography is more dependent on the specific botany of the, of the season and, uh, and, and latitude. And also, if you're photographing public gardens, there may be constraints about when the gardens open, whether you can use tripods and so on and so forth. Basically, landscape photography, which is, again, hence the subtitle of my book and also how I approached photographing gardens at large, then in terms of bringing it inside, it's not just what one grows. I mean, growing oneself has so many advantages, I'm sure, as Kirk knows, and it's a pleasure in its own right, and you get to photograph things that you can't get elsewhere. But the truth is also I enjoy photographing uh, flowers bought in the supermarket, too. That, too. If you don't have any, if you don't have a garden and if you don't have any flowers, just go to the or go to a florist and say, give me a bouquet of very interesting flowers. Say, and, say the purpose of it. It's going to be yeah. for photography. So I'd like you to keep that in mind as you pick out whatever it is. But that's a great way to go. And have them write down the names, too, because yeah, if you don't yeah. know them, it's kind of helpful. <laughs> yes. That's actually one of my limitations is I I have no head for botany, for gardening, for names of things. And so even though you don't have to know what you're shooting because you're looking at form and shape and light and color, I always run into that that part where, oh, I, I'm going to post this on Instagram or on my website or whatever. And I'm like, this is a yellow flower of earth origin i suppose and well jeff there's an app for that okay. yeah i have one called picture this take a picture it checks yeah. a database gives you either exactly what it is or a couple of possibilities so 
And personally, as a photographer, I don't really care if I see a if I see a beautiful Jeff Carlson picture of a lovely yellow flower. That's fine. Call it yellow flower. That's fine with me. <laughs> also, that's what uh, tags from a horticultural nursery are for. Or yes. A florist who tells you what it is. I mean, you know, I like to joke to the kids. That's what an external memory device, e.g., a pencil and piece of paper, are for. If, exactly. You know, the one one tip there would be when you are photographing in a public garden, and if you're photographing a specific specimen, they're all tagged and marked. Write down what it is, or to snap a picture of the tag. Yeah. yeah. You have a few photos of let's say non-living things like there's a photo in the back with a bunch of seeds and twigs and what i find interesting when i'm bored is to walk around my garden and just look at the twigs and the branches and the the light that's coming in um on the different elements it's not just the bright colorful flowers um and and i generally prefer shooting in black and white uh except when i'm shooting macro flower photos but that that idea of looking shapes forms light um, you have so much in a garden that goes beyond just um, flowers. For example, in some gardens, you have cats that you can photograph. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in terms of that distinction between what's a weed and what's a flower, it's a pretty smart uh, botanist who really knows the difference. You know, one person's weed is another person's flower and vice versa. Yeah. Ralph Waldo Emerson said something like a weed is just a flower that man has not figured out what to do with or something like that. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure the exact words. Yeah, or, um, vi- or what, vice versa. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what I find interesting about all of this, though, is particularly in our times when we can't travel um, or can't travel much and easily, um, if you're looking for something to do in photography and you have a garden, go out. Take your lenses if you want to get a macro lens or even extension tubes to, to macrofy an ordinary lens. If you don't have a garden, maybe you can get to a municipal garden, a park. Um, th- there's a world of nature that is really interesting that you don't really see until you look at it up close. It's a good point. I mean, and, and it's been made to me a couple of times about this book. I mean, you know, I did not write it. It's been many years in the making, obviously, but I did not write it expecting a pandemic. Nobody ever expects the Spanish Inquisition. No, I didn't. <laughs> but, but, but it is possible to do most garden photography in a socially distanced way, whether it is at your home or in, in a municipal garden or in something like that. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. And it's good to get out. Yeah, it's definitely good to get out, especially in something like this where it's a lot of fresh air, a lot of uh, – I actually saw an article recently saying that um, because of the pandemic, a lot more people have been going out to parks. There was some study or some realization that you know going to a park for 15 minutes made you feel better for four hours. One thing I wanted to mention that you touched on briefly that I don't know if our listeners know is that if you go to a lot of public gardens or private gardens, sometimes they will not allow you to – have tripods. There's a Japanese garden in Portland, uh, which is wonderful and actually has that Japanese maple that you see in all the pictures. If you want to have a tripod, you have to basically buy like a photography membership. So they're going to charge you extra to have a tripod there. But a lot of places, because it's not really geared as a space for photographers, they don't want you to, to bring a tripod. With that out of the way, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about lighting. How much auxiliary lighting do you find yourself doing? And do you typically do that with like uh, strobes or reflectors? Or is it really all 
depend. Let me just uh, start with a follow up on your uh, uh, tripods and gardens. And the the takeaway there should be do your homework and contact the garden first and see what the situation is. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, Many of them will let you use a tripod, provided that you warrant that you're not going to stick the the feet in and ruin a rare specimen, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, common sense and courtesy. But, you know, and in some cases, there's an additional fee involved. But just check out what it is and follow the rules. Well, I've come to believe about lighting that the key skill is actually understanding light, reading light. You have to start with the premise that the kind of counterintuitive premise that you cannot actually photograph an object. The only thing you can photograph is the light emitted or reflected from an object. So the key skill that I take with me regarding lighting into a garden is my eyes. (laughs) okay so you so in this checklist of what you do when you go to a garden you try to understand the design of the garden and you also try to understand what the lighting conditions are and how that's going to interact with what you're you set out to photograph in the garden light has a number of characteristics that are some of which are fairly obvious some less so intensity um Color temperature, which depends really on the position of the sun to a great extent, and a little less analytic quality, which is how diffuse or undiffuse the light is. And what I'm going to be able to photograph and the kind of photographs I'm going to be able to make will depend on the quality of this lighting and how I receive it. You know, when I'm working in my studio at home, I do use a fair amount of auxiliary lighting in addition to the light box. Very honestly, when I'm traveling around the world, as I used to do up until uh, sometime in early March, uh, I've spent an awful lot of the last 10 years photographing in many parts of Europe, Asia, North America. I try to be limited about what I carry. I have a camera backpack with a backpack on it. I'm getting less and less eager to be schlepping many, many, many pounds of gear. So I don't take that much auxiliary equipment with me for that kind of work. The only thing I have is a miniaturized reflector that is um, white on one side and a light gold on the other side. It pops into a little sack and I pull it out and you can position it in place. And if you're in a situation where light on the, where you need a, basically a fill light coming from one side, that really works very well. And it's essentially no weight to carry. So I guess that's an answer to your question is that for me in field garden photography, I don't use much auxiliary lighting. If I had an assignment to photograph a garden for a landscape designer and I had the budget to have other people help me carry things and bring things in, I could really see lighting things differently, perhaps with uh, field strobes and so on. I think we all have that reflector and some people have actually figured out how to fold it up and put it back in the little sack. The secret is a twist. That's what, that's <laughs> you, have to, you have to actually twist it twice to, to yeah. get it. I figured it out yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. I watched the YouTube video. Um, I, I use that in my garden too because it's the easiest way. It's the it's the simplest, lightest, easiest way to change the lighting, and just changing the angle of it a little bit changes the lighting a great deal. Um, you tilt it up, you tilt it down, depending on where the sun is. Even if there's not sun, it can make a difference. Even if it's cloudy, it can make a difference to get those those overly shaded parts of a flower just slightly brighter. And it's also something that's that's less intrusive. That that was part of my question too. Was wondering if you're going to go to a garden, obviously. 
they don't want you tromping around in the flowers and they probably don't want you disrupting things with, oh, hang on, let me grab my strobe here and I've got my little <laughs> softbox here. And, you know, if I was somebody who worked at the garden, I would think that there was just a disaster waiting to happen. So having just a little tiny reflector uh, really also seems to be more respectful of the space, which I think is also important. You know, I'm I'm sort of the opposite, hopefully, of the big-headed photographer who says, you know, I like I'm 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 Mr. National Geographic with a boat boatload of whatever is in a big ego. I'd rather yeah, yeah. people not notice me. Just one more um, suggestion for places to take pictures of flowers, and this might be specific to the UK. Um, we have a garden center near us um, in the UK. A garden center is generally a complex that sells flowers and food and they have a cafe and it's like people spend half a Saturday or a Sunday there. And one of them that's near us has a, a, a sort of a landscaped space that you can walk around in, you can take pictures. They even have, do you call it a hide where you go in to take pictures of birds and they have a blind. They have a blind where you can go in and sit down and then set up your lens and they've got places where they put bird feed out. And this is just to attract people um, to the garden center. And it's quite interesting. Um, they have tons of interesting species and you can wander around in their this landscaped area. It's not very big, um, but you can get the hundreds of species of flowers. I love the idea of them uh, attracting photographers the way that you would attract the birds with, <laughs> <laughs> with the seed. <laughs> like that's just good business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like flowers too, but yeah, it's a, that's good advice. I don't think around here we have anything with the cafeteria part exactly, but the truth is that horticultural nurseries, which we do have are very, very hospitable to photographers and often there are species there that you're never going to bring home with you that are great to photograph so yes that's definitely a recommended place to uh photograph every garden center in the uk is this multiferous thing that they okay you'll find some tiny ones but it's always they've got a gift shop they sell garden furniture they've got the outdoor bit with all the little plants the the trees um they've got the cafe they've got a car wash i mean it's meant to be a day out thing in this country it's really strange i'd like to i'd like to visit some of these sometime you know the epigraph for my book was uh, from the lord of the rings where it says something like gardeners must be honored in your land well uh, I think uh, your land must be a realm of peace and content, and there must gardeners be in high honor. Well, you know, when he when he was writing about the Shire, of course, it was sort of a parody of England. Well, not just England, of, of an area about 10 miles from where I live. Really? Um, we visited a house before we moved in our current house four years ago, and the person who owned the house explained to us that the church just up the road is thought to be the door that inspired Tolkien for the door the the speak friend and you will enter door i'm not that much of a tolkien geek um but there are tolkien areas all around here we were in a village a few miles away and in england they have these blue plaques that they put in front of historical uh buildings and it was mentioned that this is the one that in, inspired tolkien for the prancing pony so this is the tolkien area he was from um i'm near stratford upon avon he was from sort of south of birmingham which is not far from here um so yes i live in the shire um one, <laughs> one final thing i live next to a farm and i find almost as interesting um 
taking pictures of the fields of the farm, um, when the plants are growing, when they're harvested afterwards. Um, I took some close-up shots of the wheat in the field across the road from me the other day. Um, they're not quite as interesting as flowers, but what you get more with crops is you get that repetition where you have lines of crops growing, and that can be really interesting too. Of course, that could come up with flowers, lavender fields, you know, or race seed fields and so on. Oh, don't oh, yeah. tell me about rapeseed. They are they are the worst thing for allergies. We have some rapeseed fields not far from here. Anyway, I'm not going to complain too much more. We're in the middle of a heat wave and it's really been a disagreeable few days. But Harold, you have made this day much more interesting. Um, I thank you very much for joining us. Um, I really do appreciate the book. Um, just to mention to our listeners, if you have subscribed to our newsletter, we'll have a couple of copies of the book to give away. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, what are you waiting for? And also, if you want to buy the book from Rocky Nook, we'll have a link in the show notes. If you use the code GARDEN40, you'll get 40% off. Harold, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Harold. Okay, Jeff, it's time for our snapshots. What have you got? My snapshot for today is something that actually would be very helpful when photographing flowers, although that wasn't the original purpose. It is the Peak Design Clutch. Quite a while ago, you brought up the Peak Design Cuff, which is a wristband. The clutch is basically a hand strap that just sits along the right side of the camera so you can put your hand in and hold the camera and have it secured there without having a full strap or a wrist strap or anything dangling. It just kind of gives you a little bit of extra support. And it's also, uh, I find, just a, a good way to carry the camera around and not feel like I might drop it. It's about $40. It's actually my preferred way of holding my camera if I don't need a strap. My habit is to use a strap that's not too long that goes across one shoulder to the other side of my body. That way I can just drop the camera and it doesn't fall and my hands are free. I've always, while I have one of those wrist straps, I use it occasionally, like if I'm in the garden, I'm always more comfortable with that camera strapped to my body just because, you know, it's like a thousand, twelve hundred pounds for that camera <laughs> plus the lens. And right. if it slips, it's, yeah. Yeah. What about you? What do you have this week? My snapshot is a book. Um, I came across this a couple of weeks ago, and I was so happy to find this book. It's called Cezanne, The Rock and Quarry Paintings. Now, the reason why this made me very happy, I just sent Jeff an image file of one of the paintings. Um, for many years, I worked at the General Motors building in New York, which is at the southeast corner of Central Park, which is where that computer company made that store with the big glass cube. It's just a few blocks from the Museum of Modern Art. And I would often go to the Museum of Modern Art on whatever day of the week it was free. And I'd wander around. And there was this painting that Cezanne did of, this one is Pines and Rocks in, in the forest of Fontainebleau near Paris. And I love this painting so much. I had a postcard of it on the wall of my cubicle. Yes, I had a job with a suit and a tie and a cubicle back then. And for years, I, I mean, I lost the postcard. I hadn't seen it. I didn't know which one it was. This book came out recently. It's, it's the catalog of an exhibit um, from the Princeton University Art Museum that was supposed to be in London, um, but that was canceled because of COVID. And I only heard about this a few weeks ago when someone I know who makes a weekly list of links to cultural stuff posted about it, um, where there was a video on the Princeton University Museum website discussing this. And 
why am I talking about this here? Because um, Cezanne's rock and quarry paintings are really very specific. It's it's rocks, it's trees, it's 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 a different kind. It's not a big landscape like the Mont Saint Victoire, which he painted many times. But the the level of composition and the fact that you can make a painting or a photograph of something as banal as rocks and trees, um, I find fascinating. And I think we'll put the image I sent Jeff into the show notes. Um, it's a very striking image um, where it's got Cezanne's bold brush strokes coloring the rocks and providing shade. And it just made me think of the kind of thing that if I was in a forest with rocks, I would be attracted to this sort of image of looking at this. There's only about 25 paintings, but there's a lot of other um, paintings in the book and, and watercolors and even some paintings by other artists as comparisons. It's not a very big book, um, but it's it's a this specific painting is something very dear to me. So Cezanne, the rock and quarry paintings. He is by all measure my favorite photographer. <laughs> <laughs> and he shot analog too. So analog. So analog. Yeah. Um, I, I think I've picked other books of painted art in the past as snapshots because I think we can learn a lot from painting. I mean, the same rules of composition apply in painting as they do in photography. Absolutely. Although I said rules. They're not really rules, are they? But, well, that's for another episode. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.